This is The Guardian. Today, something rare, an on-the-record interview with a former undercover police officer. Just a quick warning before we start. This episode does contain strong language and references to drugs and violence. One spring night in a pub on the outskirts of Liverpool, David Taylor sat down to discuss a business deal. Only certain people will be allowed in the meeting. There'll be no phones at this meeting. They'll, they'll all be left outside. Four men were planning to smuggle thousands of pounds worth of drugs from Holland to the UK. Naturally, it was a secretive operation. Arthur, one of the other men at the table, warned that any leaks or traitors would not be tolerated. If there's a rat, we just cut its throat. We cut its fucking throat. Just put it down, forget it. But for David, those words were especially chilling. He was an undercover police officer, and he knew that Arthur had killed before. He was thinking, he better not figure this out. <laughs> I mean, that, you, I can't put it clearer than that, but that, that is literally what you're thinking. We need to be careful here. It's extremely rare for undercover police officers to speak publicly about what they do and how they do it. But David feels betrayed by his colleagues. And after a deployment went off the rails and ended suddenly, he's finally ready to speak out. So what happens when an undercover operation goes so far from plan? And how does an undercover police officer negotiate their two identities? From The Guardian, I'm Nosheen Iqbal. Today in Focus, what does it take to be an undercover cop? David, and I'm going to call you David, but it's not your real name. We're not going to go too much into your background. Can you tell me specifically about your work? How did your first undercover job in the police come about? I'd done some work early on in my career, an attachment for, with the Force Drug Squad. And then the opportunity came when it was still new and fresh in the, in the 90s to do this, what was called then a test purchase course. Can you explain what that means, test purchase? For listeners who don't know, what is it? So say, for example, there is a particular problem on a particular estate with um, an, an increase in drug-related crime. So breaking into vehicles, burglaries, that type of thing. The intelligence picture is it's drug-related. The people are funding heroin habits, crack cocaine habits, whatever. Your basic idea would be to get out there and buy some drugs off these people at, at a street level. So you'd be going up to a dealer and just basically asking to buy some drugs. Did anyone ever stop at any point and say, no, not you, or suspect that you might be a police officer? Um, yeah, you, you get a couple of that things, but it's not, it's not that you're going to get called a copper straight away or, you know, it's just maybe you want to know a little bit more about you. So that this is where you've got to be able to, as I would describe it, you know, think on your feet. 
you know, um, how do you know I'm dealing or who told you I'm dealing? So you, you've got to be able to converse mm. at, at the right level with, with the individual you're talking to. If you're going to be buying ecstasy, I mean, I was in the time in the 90s when it was all ravey davy stuff. So you wanted to know what DJs are playing at which clubs and where had you been the weekend before and what ease were they selling there? And it just makes you then more, you know, well, real. Yeah. You know, and, and I think I think that that's the big thing. It's to, to be real. After several years of doing that work intermittently, going undercover part-time, David was asked to apply for a course that was, at the time, known as Level 1 Undercover Work, where he would get intensive training on how to do one of the most secretive jobs in policing. I've done a lot of courses in my police career, but I can say without doubt that the most difficult by far was this Level 1 course. It was the most strenuous thing you can imagine. You don't sleep very very much, but of course that's on purpose. You know, the, the, the less sleep you have, the more prone you are to sense of humor failure and, you know, um, forgetting things and all that type of stuff. So, so it, you're kept it, on edge a bit? Constantly. I mean, it, it, it is it, it, it is intense. There, there's very little downtime and, and that's on purpose. David, a lot of people wouldn't be prepared to basically give up their life to assume a new, completely different identity. What do you think it was about your personality that made you feel prepared to do that? I don't like bullies. There's a lot of that in society. I just I had no time for it. I can't stand people pushing people around. If you can imagine, you've always you so you've worked within that environment that I've described um, at the lower level. You, you've seen the damage, but above those people that are causing the damage at, at a street level are the untouchables, as I would call them. Mm. Their hands aren't dirty, but it's their product that that is, that is causing these problems within society. Um, so you kind of think, well, it'll be really nice to get a few of those. So that was your ultimate goal, to catch the the big players, as it were? Yes, yeah. What do you think it was about your personality? Like, What made you particularly drawn to this work and good at it? I mean, that's that's a question I find find difficult to answer because I don't really really know the answer. You know, it's it's, it's something that that fascinates me. You see the amounts of money these people make. Um, You think, well, there's got to be something we can do about it. The very idea of undercover policing has come under massive scrutiny in recent years in the wake of the spy cop scandal. The Guardian revealed that police sent officers to infiltrate political groups and even spy on the families of victims, including Stephen Lawrence. Some were revealed to have acted horrendously, deceiving women into long-term intimate relationships. David's work, though, had nothing to do with that. He wasn't monitoring political groups, His mission was to target organised crime. Initially, David was asked to investigate a spate of robberies targeting HGV trucks that carried everything from electronics to trainers. Where we were deployed, we'd been told time and time again you were dealing with a very savvy criminal area. The people were very savvy. They had experience of the, the tactic, undercover tactic before. And it was described on, in one of the reports that I was given at the time as probably the most difficult area in the country to infiltrate. David joined an undercover operation that was already up and running. Officers in Liverpool had laid the groundwork by setting up a fake business that was entirely run by other covert police officers. David was set up with a new job there, a new home. But first, 
he needed a whole new identity to immerse himself into. How exactly does it work? You know, what happens next? Are you given a character? Do you make up your own? No, you kind of develop your own cover, your own legend, you know, whatever word you want to use, obviously with help. Can you uh, tell me a bit about what yours was? I've come over here to escape uh, a drama, shall we say, a problem I've had with law enforcement and, and a, a fallout with um, drug dealers. And then I've come here to escape them. Right. To lie low from both the police and the, and the criminals that are looking for me. I had a friend in the area in Liverpool and that was my reason for being there. And so David would sit in local pubs and cafes. He would develop a routine. Act friendly, but not too friendly. Seem approachable, but mind his own business. Slowly, he let his cover story be known, feeding it out in dribs and drabs, hoping it would draw people to him. Eventually, he met the right kind of wrong people. Criminals involved in buying and selling stolen goods. And he built their trust. You're establishing yourself as somebody who can middle that commodity. I, I can take 50 cases or 20 of this, 50 or 100 of that, and I can shift them on and make a profit. Mm. So you've established yourself as being... Trustworthy. From, and... Yeah, from, from that ilk. You know, from, you've established yourself basically as one of them. It took some time, a, a, good, a good few months, you know, um, five, five months maybe, some, something along that line. There was one man in particular that David became interested in. John seemed well-connected, someone who might lead David to bigger things. If anybody wanted anything in the vicinity where he lived, he'd be the person that they went to. And I mean anything from a stolen box of Purcell washing powder to a kilo of cocaine and anything in between. Right. Um, a middleman, a, a guy who gets a drink on everything, as, as they would say up there. You know, something costs 100, you can have it for 120. Wheeling and dealing and having lots, lots, of, lots of contacts. David began spending more and more time in John's world. He was a criminal, doing criminal things. But his reality was still relatively ordinary, mundane even. While most of us might understand undercover policing to constantly involve high stakes, dangerous heists and dodgy deals, a lot of the work David did was the normal stuff in between. Chatting about sport, Hanging out with a family, going round for dinner. Come in, come in, you know, his wife lets you in, there's kids running around the floor and you stand in the kitchen talking about the price of cocaine these days and, oh, just give us a hand slicing a few tomatoes. So, you you know, while you're discussing current market trends, you rustling up a salad. Are you going to come and have Sunday lunch with us? Oh, that'd be great. So it's just, it is literally what, you know, normal people do. Being a criminal isn't a 24-hour job. You you do You do your criminal activity and then carry on and do normal things, which is things like socializing. There's a lot of socializing, a lot of going out to, you know, pubs and restaurants and that sort of thing, which again is what normal people do. So it sounds like what you're describing here is something like a friendship. And do you think it is possible to fake a friendship like that? I mean, fundamentally based on a lie or on some level, did you, did you genuinely like this person? Um, I suppose he, he, he wasn't, I suppose I did, I did like him in a way, but I would have had no compunction to bang him up and throw him in jail. Really? So there was no conflict oh, no, 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 for you? No, 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 not, not, not like that. Not, not, not in those regards. But that doesn't mean he wasn't a likable person. And it also doesn't mean he wasn't a good father to his kids and a good husband to his wife. But you're still selling these products and these things that are causing misery. 
As David's contacts expanded, the focus of his undercover operation changed from stolen goods to drugs. If you can imagine, when I was talking about the test purchase operation, you're doing more or less the same thing, just with bigger quantities and with more experienced criminals. So instead of buying a gram, you might be buying an ounce at a time. And then as as you're socializing with people, of course, oh, come on, we're going to the club tonight or whatever. Then you meet other people. These are my friends. You you know, oh, he's a good guy. He can get his hand on this. And you're, you're, you're basically, you're, people start to know who you are. Eventually, David met Arthur, the man he later found out was a known killer. So I get introduced to this guy, um, who I am told is very well connected to the sort of upper echelons of criminality within Liverpool and abroad. Um, I would describe this individual at the time, he was a few years older than me, incredibly powerful, powerfully built and violent and vicious. If you were his friend, not a problem. But he didn't want to be on the other side of this individual. So we started talking about um, arranging the importation of some cocaine and all this via his contacts abroad. And in the course of all this, I've just met this just met this guy and just to sort of give you some flavor about it when I talk about it being a nerve-wracking job. So um, I get invited to a, I don't know if a wake is quite the right word, but like a benefit evening, uh, for want of a better phrase, at, at, a, at a local pub somewhere up there. Um, which was for some some young kid who'd been killed in some gang-related um, incident, and, and it, it was an innocent. Um, and anyway, within this, this local community pub, they were just passing the bucket round and just getting some money together for the family. While all this is going on, a couple of um, what we would sort of call young scallies come into the pub, and they're, they're loud and leery and just being obnoxious, really, which in the grand scheme of things you wouldn't bother about. But this particular night wasn't the night to do it. So this um, Arthur that we're with just sort of basically tells them to, you know, shut up, behave. And of course, it's the usual straight up to 30,000 feet and, oh, you, you know, who are you, old man, and all this type of thing. He sort of tells to them to get outside. And of course they do. And he looks at them and he said something like, one of you at a time or all three, I don't care, get on with it. And then one of them recognized him. Oh, Mr. Mr. The, that's Arthur. That's all. Oh, my God. Oh, my, don't hurt us. Don't hurt us. I remember thinking, my God, you know, that, that's, that's, some, that's some reputation. Well, what's going through your head at this point? Yeah, I better not say something wrong. And he also better not figure out what I do for a living, actually do for a living. We're starting to move now in areas where, you know, a slight wrong comment or a slight wrong action is going gonna, is gonna to cause you some serious harm. And what about the way you would gather evidence in this situation? Are you taking in a recording device or wearing a wire, or are you just secretly going off and taking notes somewhere? You've got um, recording devices, yes. So you think, of course, you're thinking things like, oh my God, you know, you, you, don't, you, don't, want, you don't want this to be found, or can, can you imagine what would happen if it was? And they, I mean, it, it doesn't bear contemplating about, which again is why, you know, you have, you have, to, be, you have to be constantly careful to paint a full picture. I mean, I, th I think it might have even been that night or, oh, another night. And he ended up back, um, back at his, his flat. And we're just chatting away, having a beer, blah, blah, blah. And then the next thing is he's got his coke out and he's racking up lines on the fridge, uh, you know, six, eight inches away from me. But with a big, you know, like a 12-inch carving knife, waving it at you all the time while racking up um, lines of cocaine and then saying, and, and yeah, and you better not be a rat. And, and we just... So directly saying that to you? Oh, yes, to your face. 
Can I ask how the pit of your stomach was? Oh, no, 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 not good. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, you, 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 you are really, again, it's, 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 it's again to describe that the, the, the emotional side of that is, is, is difficult because you, you've got to appear normal like we're talking here now, and all the while you're just thinking, oh my goodness, I'm really not liking this. How worried were you about being caught out in your lie? Oh no, very. As the operation progresses. And you're you're dealing more and more with upper echelon people, you know, higher higher grade criminals. The risk increases exponentially because these people don't get to be at the top if they, you know, can't spot a rat. So you're you're constantly worrying. And then, of course, because you're dealing with so many different people, you can't tell John one thing and Paul another. Mm. You know, you, you've got to keep it consistent. Exactly, because then people talk, and then. He told me this last night. No, he told me that. What? And then straight away you've got a problem. So constantly you're worrying. Another thing that most people don't know about undercover policing is that the officer isn't always immersed 24-7 in their fake identity. It is still a job. There is still downtime. You get to go back home in some other part of the country, see your friends, see your family, and try to live your real life which can get complicated. You're away working in the, in the role I've been describing, so you're effing and jeffing, being rude and crude, a lad about town. And then you go home and you see your partner. And your partner hasn't seen you for a while and wants to go out for dinner, so you go out for dinner. And then you find yourself using language that you wouldn't normally use, uh, for example. Then there's a phone call on your, your criminal phone. So you've got to slip straight back into that mode talk to the individual on the phone, and then sit down and carry on your dinner with your partner. What was it like living this double life? Look, it's, it, look I, I'll, be, I'll be a liar if I said it, it's not, not exciting and it's not a buzz, because it, it is. But, but it is very, um, very taxing. Did it ever blur? Like, did you forget yourself? When you said you were, you know, one minute you're effing and jeffing being a wheeler dealer and the next... You're being a good partner, or um, I think a I think some I think it I think sometimes it does, but again I'm I'm talking with the benefit of hindsight here because I don't think you realise it so much at the time. Look, if if you started using some real crude language or something, you might go, oh, I couldn't do that, you know. So you you would realise then, but sometimes not so much, you know. You maybe get one of your friends go, you're not yourself. What's going on? Were there moments where it got so hairy that you had to ask for time out or you'd needed time to recollect, recalibrate? Um, the short answer to that is at the time I didn't think so, but with hindsight probably that should have happened. Around a year into his deployment, the operation, according to a secret police report, was going well. The undercover officers in Liverpool had collected evidence, including taped videos showing the involvement of 20 suspected criminals in offences ranging from supplying Class A drugs to handling stolen goods. It identified David as having infiltrated the criminal network with, to quote, the greatest success. By then, David was firmly established. His criminal network was growing and, he says, he was getting closer to realising the ambition that he had when he first took on the job to find and catch the biggest players of all. I, I believe I met one of the biggest um, dealers in Liverpool and by, by extension, England. I got invited to a, I don't know how to describe it, other than a party. 
a five-star hotel in a, in a recognizable chain, which shall remain nameless. And there were just going to be a whole bunch of people there. Mm. Come along, make sure you've got a lot of money because it's going to be expensive, but there'll be, some, there'll be some power brokers, you know, top people. So rolled into this place, really not knowing what to expect. You know, a corridor going through the hotel and there's a sports bar and this and that. Well, these guys had hired the sports bar mm. um, for their party. Now, bearing in mind there are normal people, um, when I say normal, I mean non-criminals, um, visiting the hotel with families and having a weekend away, whatever. And we're, we're in this bar, which has got a, a glass front on it, looking out sort of into a corridor in the hotel, if you will. Within minutes, these people have come in and they've just put bags of drugs down on the table in front. And they, everybody can see this outside. It's walking past. No one's batting an eyelid. There's cocaine, ecstasy, and you could still smoke there and say cannabis and what, in, in bowls out for the guests? Or? Yeah, they put them out of their pockets. Oh, yes, it, you know, I've, got an, I've got an Oz or Charlie on me, you know, and just chuck it on the table out themselves. Oh, I've got a bag full of pills. Oh, yeah, I brought some weed. And they just carry on. And while all this is going on, one, one of the other guys, um, I want to say I think he was Italian, this guy stands up and without really saying a word, he's, he goes up to the open window that's out onto the street and he, he closes the blinds, you see. And we're all like, what are you doing? Got to be careful for snipers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But not joking. Right. Okay. You're like, what planet? You know, yeah, come on. And then ha, 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 and they think, well, he's not joking. Oh, whatever. And then just carried on, you see. The next thing is I get introduced to this guy who, who I would say is, is Mr. Big. And I'm talking to him. And again, you know, not raising his voice. Just, are you doing? I know you know this guy and this guy in the group and they tell me you're good to do business with them we're just chatting like you do and uh, i'm thinking who's he and i can see all these people around him there's like deference to him there's there's respect so i, I realize obviously you're dealing with a, a different class of individual here someone made the comment at, at this particular do that i'm talking about of saying this guy we're talking about he sets the price of cocaine in liverpool yeah and i've managed to sort of get this guy to well he agreed to, that we'd have a meeting you know, and it was clear that there was, um, well, in my opinion, he'd taken a bit of a shine to me, um, which was which was quite gratifying, I suppose, because all that hard work you've done where we were talking about being real, laying the groundwork, maybe it's going to pay off. You know, maybe you're going to actually get somewhere. So what else did you suspect that this character was involved in? What did you think that this meeting would have led to had it gone? Well, what 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 I'd hoped was that we'd get down to arranging some kind of a a purchase of, of a substantial quantity of cocaine of this guy. You know, that would have really had a, you know, were you able to achieve that, you know, an actual, tangible impact. Except a few days after the party and before that important meeting could take place, David says he was pulled from the operation. Overnight, everything he had worked towards gathering enough evidence to put serious criminals in prison, was over. The official explanation, set out in internal police reports, was that David had jeopardised the operation. As a result of some of his actions, the report said it might not be possible to prosecute any of the suspected criminals because there was a risk that the evidence he had gathered would be compromised. One incident a macho game of chicken between David and the other criminals in which they were making cigarette burns on one another, could have seen David charged with an assault. Twice, he was accused of allowing somebody to drive his vehicle when he knew that they were disqualified. 
Most seriously, David was accused on one occasion of becoming involved in the sale of cocaine while he drove a drug dealer around in his car. I was in a car when John dealt some cocaine to someone. Well, and? So he's dealing 50 quid's worth of cocaine or 20 quid's worth of cocaine or whatever. And he's in, he's in my car and, again, maybe not perfect, but I'm buying cocaine off this guy all the time. I'm authorized to involve myself in conspiracies. It's, you know, I'm not quite sure what, what the issue is. David claims that his colleagues were aware at the time of everything he was doing. It was recorded, logged, and he says there were no complaints made to him at the time. He wasn't reprimanded then, and to him, he was doing his job. You know, I mean, I didn't know that's what he was going to do, but I reported it straight away and said, oh, while we were out, he did this. Did he? So you've got, you've got to understand that it's all reported, and the feedback at the time is fantastic. He's showing you the, the, the depth of his criminality. This is excellent for the job. So there were other things that happened within the operation, which I maintain were the actual reasons that they did what they did. David feels like he was made a scapegoat. He suggests that it was incompetence that led to him being taken off the job. In his view, really, it all came down to another incident involving his colleagues that he felt was much worse than anything he had been accused of. We're approached to um, involve ourselves in the criminal enterprise of smuggling um, contraband cigarettes into the country. Um, from Holland. So I'd been approached about whether or not we could use our business as a delivery address. Um, yes, go for it. That, that's, that's great. This is really good. But, you know, we're taking the operation forward. And all I really have to do is take delivery of a pallet. Now the pallet arrives. So this is great. Here's the pallet. Thank you very much. Right. Not cigarettes. No way. Not a chance. There's just no way. It, it's too small. So this is reported. So I'm saying it's drugs or firearms, but most likely drugs, because these, these, these people are drug dealers. So that's the likelihood. But you're poo-pooed and ignored. And there are comments like, um, we'll go with the intelligence we've got. This is the intelligence from the criminal, not the cop. So you, I'm saying, well, the criminal's telling you it's cigarettes. I'm telling you it isn't. You're going to believe the criminal over me. I'm standing here looking at the bloody thing. Whatever was in those pallets, David says the police never searched them before the criminals came and took them away. To David, it seemed that his account was being ignored so as to avoid embarrassing headlines. He claims that the police were prepared to take a delivery of contraband cigarettes as part of an undercover sting operation. But the idea that they may have inadvertently helped flood the streets of Liverpool with a shipment of cocaine was a mistake too grave to justify. David believes that this is why he was really moved off the operation. He had become an awkward thorn and he wasn't willing to back down on what he believed had happened. Just think how that looks. So you've been failed, is how you feel? Um, yeah, I, I, I think I have. Coming up. Undercover policing took a toll on David. Was it all worth it?
Shantae Joseph, I'm a writer and broadcaster and I spend way too much time online. But now those years of scrolling are finally paying off because I'm hosting The Guardian's new pop culture podcast. In each episode, I'm going to get under the skin of the week's biggest stories. If you love pop culture and want to get into how it's shaping and impacting our lives, then you should join me every Thursday, launching on the 3rd of November. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Bye. David was moved off the undercover operation, but for years carried on working as a policeman. One thing he never did give up on was trying to make the case that he was taken off the Liverpool assignment, not because of his own behaviour, but because of what he saw as his colleagues trying to avoid embarrassment. But he has never been able to prove that. David, you gave over a big part of your life to do something that was really mentally taxing, dangerous and hard work. Do you feel it was worth it? Well... With my with my experience, I, I can only say no. So I, I would say I, I had a I had a bad experience. Um, I am aware of um, uh, personally. I am aware of another um, or a number of officers who have had similar bad experiences. So it's not. I'm not the only one. I know that for a fact. David's experience is one we rarely hear about on the record. Undercover policing, by its nature, is secretive. It's also gained a really unsavoury reputation. The more the public has learned about the likes of spy cops, where officers infiltrated political groups and abused their powers, even had children with women under their fake identities, the less people trusted the power granted to these undercover officers. In David's undercover career, something also clearly went badly wrong. In the police's version of events, David lacked judgment and acted outside the rules. In David's, his police colleagues made a mistake and then acted in their own self-interest to avoid the repercussions. And yet, after all of that, he doesn't think the problem lies with undercover policing itself. I, per- I personally, um, although I've had a, a bad experience myself, I personally think it, it's it's used correctly, I think it's probably one of the best tools in the box. I mean, I know there are all sorts of problems. Um, Well, I've just highlighted some of them here. You know, mistakes are going to happen. Errors are always going to happen in anything. And yes, we should try and reduce them, of course. But I mean, the vast majority of police officers, 99% of the the ones I've worked with, brilliant. And they're all trying to do a good job. But they're affected by this, um, well, the institution. The institution is what needs looking at. That was David. Not his real name. My thanks to him. Merseyside Police, after examining David's allegations, has maintained that there was no tangible evidence provided that would support his claims. The force told The Guardian that it takes very seriously any allegations of corruption and impropriety on the part of its officers. All such allegations are investigated and, if appropriate, criminal and or misconduct proceedings are pursued. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Joshua Kelly. Sound design is by Solomon King. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.